Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. So we're in part three of a sermon series we've been in now for some time uh, on, uh, on sin. It's uh, the Lenten season. That's what you're supposed to be reflecting on through Lent. You're supposed to be reflecting on your own sin and God's grace and how God's grace resolves that. So uh, for the nerds in the room, we've kind of laid out a theological map for you. Yeah, here's a picture of it. And we're in the third week of the series today. So if you go third row down and, uh, and to the right. And uh, basically each week what we're doing is we're just looking at a different sphere of human life, how sin impacts that, and what Jesus does to heal us, to save us from it. So this week we'll look, be looking at the sphere of human life called our conscience, the warring desires that are therein and how Jesus, through the promise of the Spirit, offers his help. Uh, will you stand with me? And let's begin by reading from God's word, Galatians chapter 5. 16 through 25, if uh, you cannot stand, that's fine. Uh, Just put your mind and your heart in a place of submission to God's word. Ask him to speak to you today. The apostle Paul writes to the church of Galatia, verse 16, live by the spirit, I say. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit. And what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now, the work of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you. I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We live by the Spirit. Let us also be guided by the Spirit. The word of the Lord, you can be seated. That's the New Revised Standard Version for those of you wondering. Thanks be to God for all of his word. Uh, So in 1862, Emily Dickinson, great American poet, wrote these unforgettable words. The heart wants what it wants. Now, in her original context, uh, she was actually writing these to a friend who was grieving. Her friend's uh, husband was going to leave her for a very long time. And so, uh, in this original context, Dickinson knew that there was really nothing she could say to her friend to console her. So, it really sounded something more like this. I know nothing that I can say can really heal the hurt going on in your heart because the heart wants what it wants. It was an empathetic word from a friend to another friend. Now, fast forward from 1862, though, to uh, February 2021. 
And a four-part docuseries on HBO was released called uh, Alan v. Farrow. Alan v. Farrow. I'm not sure if you saw it, but it basically chronicles the relational fallout between Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. And it's considered to be especially damning for Allen because in it, it, it gives the, all the details of, of his affair on Mia with her daughter. And it also lays out the sexual abuse allegations that were brought against him by their other daughter when she was seven years old. So I'll give you a little bit more of the backstory. Uh, so you've probably heard of Woody Allen, award-winning director and actor. Mia Farrow, award-winning uh, model and actress. They started a relationship in 1980. Uh, at that time, uh, Mia Farrow had already adopted one little girl from South Korea named Soon Yi. Uh, she would go on to adopt three more children. Together, they would have a biological son named uh, Ronan. And life was good, I guess. Now, fast forward from that, though, about 10, 15 years. And uh, one day, Pharaoh finds in Woody Allen's briefcase pictures of Soon Yi. Exposed, to say the least. She comes to find out that... Uh, Woody and Soon Yi were in a romantic relationship. I think Alan was 56 at the time. Soon Yi was 21. And the relationship had been going on since Soon Yi was 19 years old, a freshman in college at Drew University. Hmm. Now, uh, fast forward to 1997, Pharaoh and Alan's relationship fell apart, and uh, Alan married Soon Yi. In 1993, I believe his name is Walter Isaacson, a journalist for Time Magazine sat down with Woody Allen. It was all kind of, you know, hitting the fan at this moment. And he, uh, he interviewed Allen about the affair. And if you read the transcript of it, it's just fascinating because really it's kind of sad. Because Allen refuses throughout the interview to admit that he did anything wrong at all throughout the whole process. And at the end of the interview, he justifies his affair with these iconic words. The heart wants what it wants. Now I want you to think right now, put on your thinking caps, and I want you to think about Alan's logic here. According to Alan's idea, think about this. Our actions are justified or condemned Not by appealing to external authorities or moral norms or others' opinions or the eventual consequences of our actions. No, our actions are justified or condemned by appealing to the internal authority of the heart, my heart. You follow? The heart rules and is mine. But I wonder... What if the heart's selfish sometimes? Um, I don't know, what if the heart's occasionally misguided? Uh, what if the heart, and I need to read this to get this correctly, what if the heart wants a stepfather to become a brother-in-law and a sister to become an aunt and a wife to become a divorcee and a family to be destroyed? Today, Dylan Farrow, Woody Allen's, adopted daughter, and Ronan Farrow, 
his biological son take their mother's last name and they haven't spoken to Woody since 1992. Which again leads me to wonder, what if the heart wants... What if the heart wants things that will destroy your family or your community? From Emily Dickinson's empathy to Woody Allen's promiscuity, oh, how the times change. Now, before you stick your nose up, don't look down at, at Woody Allen. Uh, we got to acknowledge, this idea has been romanticized today. It's basically become the slogan of an entire generation. The heart wants what it wants. Live your truth. You do you. Love is love. Be whatever you want to be. You decide. Nobody can tell you how to live your life. Or like the more right-wing militant version of it is, uh, is freedom. Freedom, y'all. We live in the land of the free. America. That's how you just sum it all up. America. I have my rights, America. A theologian, A.J. Swoboda, uh, writes this. He says, history is important. I agree. Uh, part of American identity is that our history entails throwing aside the reign of a distant king. That's how we got started here in the good U.S. of A. Uh, years ago, I happened upon the story of John Guest, he says. Guest was a well-known British evangelist who came to America in the late 1960s to deliver a series of evangelistic talks. During this visit, Guest stopped at some of the earliest American colonial sites. Just outside of Philadelphia, Guest entered a gift shop and encountered a host of signs showcasing the spirit of the early American Revolution. No taxation without representation. Don't tread on me, signs said. Still one particular sign, though, caught guests' attention. We serve no sovereign here. Guests later reflected on that sign. That sign stopped me in my tracks, he said. I had left my native land and come across the Atlantic in response to a call, a vocation to be a minister of the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom of God. But on seeing this sign, I was filled with fear and consternation. I thought, and don't miss this, he says, I thought, how can I possibly preach the kingdom of God to people who have a profound aversion to sovereignty? Swoboda writes, uh, guest was on to something important. We are a nation who has rejected the very notion of the sovereign king who directs our affairs from afar. We rebelled, we protested, we dismantled, we dis, uh, deconstructed. We did away with anyone who told us what we must do. Now, for what it's worth, I like democracy. Like, I'm a fan of freedom, y'all. But, but let's just be honest. As Americans, it's just kind of in our, our blood, our persona. We carry a freedom chip on our shoulder, don't we? It's, it's important to understand the history of your land and of your people. Because it impacts you. We serve no sovereign here. That's how this thing got started. But it's not entirely true, actually. It's not anymore. We may not serve a sovereign king across the pond. We may not even serve a sovereign God over us all. But we have enthroned a sovereign. It's the sovereign self. The heart wants what it wants after all. 
Uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor actually calls this shift uh, that's happened in, in our culture last generation, um, the, the shift into the age of authenticity. It's from the age of authority to the age of authenticity. He calls it. Basically, the logic is that uh, today, the most important thing, the most important thing to, be, to, to like becoming yourself and, and figuring out how to like work that out in the world, identifying who you are and living that out, is no longer external authorities, but rather it's internal authenticity. That's what's most important. You gotta figure out what's, what's in here. I'll jump right into the middle of his definition here. Taylor writes, each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. That's the mindset of the generation. And also that it is important to find and live out one's own. As against surrendering, to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside or by society or by the previous generation or by religious political authority. Our translation, that's fancy philosophy jargon for this, the age of authenticity in a nutshell, as life's key is to live free according to me. And there you have it. Now, a big part of the age of authenticity, by the way, is, as Taylor said, sort of shedding, pushing back on any authority from the outside that's going to tell you who you should be or the self you should be. He actually lists four categories. Did you see them? I'll take you through them again. First, he says uh, we have to cast off models imposed on us from the outside, right? So look within. To cast off models imposed on us from society. So society, cultural, moral, biological constructs put on you. Push back on them. You can be whoever you want to be. Uh, we must cast off models imposed on us from previous generations. Now, this one's new. This is an interesting one. Basically, uh, every generation to come before us and every culture or civilization in, on the planet today, like in the global east, in the global south, they all respect their elders. They all basically believe that, that previous generations have a lot of wisdom to offer. Just because they're older doesn't mean they're like automatically toxic and unenlightened. Yes, every generation has its sins, by the way, that it needs to repent of. And we need to acknowledge that. But we also need to acknowledge that the human condition remains the same. Every generation deals with things like suffering and romance and death and like purpose, identity, all this, right? So the people who came before us, just because their technology or their medical science or whatever wasn't quite advanced as ours, doesn't mean they don't have anything to offer us. Not today, though. Newer means better. Progress means smarter. So there's this mindset in the modern West that, I would call it Western supremacy, that somehow we've got it all right and we need to go colonize the rest of the world with our ideas. At last, back to his model, he says, at last, we must cast off models imposed on us from the outside society, previous generations. Oh, and also religious or political authorities because both limit your freedom of self-expression. So cast off religion, cast off political authority. Now, here's interesting. You would think in this model, by the way, that we would have abolished God by now in our culture. He'd be gone. Because he's like the definition of the ultimate external authority that tells you what to do, the ultimate sovereign. But that's not what's happened. There's actually been this reemergence of interest in spirituality and in God. It's, it's encouraging to a certain degree. Only problem is in the new spirituality... God's role has shifted 
from sovereign over us to servant to us. Basically what we do is we just construct a religious framework. We use God or our spirituality to enable our ambitions and our own vision for our life. Now, uh, that being said, in Galatians 5, 16, and 17, Paul presents something a bit different. <laughs> he presents a theology of desire that's more sophisticated, more time-tested, and more life-giving than anything you'll hear circulating in our culture today. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, Live by the Spirit, I say. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh for what the flesh desires is opposed. So there's fleshy desires. They're opposed to the spirit. And what the spirit desires, there's spirit desires. It's opposed to the flesh. There's like a war here, right? For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. Okay, so a bit different. Am I right? Basically, Paul tells us here, he says, as we process our desires, Jesus followers, there's not just one, in, one kind of desire inside of you. There's two categories of desire. Not all desires are created equal. He says there's desires of the flesh, there's desires of the spirit, and the goal of the Christian life is to identify and be guided by the desires of the spirit. Or maybe I could sum it up for you like this. Paul says the heart wants what it wants, but the spirit wants what it wants. Who will win? And you. <clears throat> now, uh, for what it's worth, Paul's just using like the Christian framework and Christian words to talk about an idea that was not radical during his time. It's radical today in our time. It was not radical in his time. Basically, all the major philosophies, all the major religious, uh, religious ideologies for centuries now, have believed something like this. They've believed that when we have desires, they shouldn't just be followed in an unrestricted, blind way, but rather uh, you need to evaluate them, determine which ones are good and bad, and then treat them with self-discipline and self-restraint. What do you mean self-restraint and self-discipline? You know this, self-restraint is not doing what you want to do when you know you shouldn't. I want to eat a bowl of ice cream every night before bed, one or three. You know, like that's just what I want, what I want. And then self-discipline is doing what you don't want to do when you know you should. I don't want to go to the gym, but you know, you go. Something like this is built into all the philosophies. Okay, let's start with uh, Aristotle, 350 years before Jesus. Aristotle says that the key to maximizing happiness is building virtue in your life. And you know how you build virtue, according to Aristotle? He calls it moral training. To train yourself morally. Self-discipline and self-restraint. What about Buddhism? Literally, Buddhism teaches rigorous self-discipline and rigorous self-restraint as the path to inner peace. What about Islam? Well, uh, their great prophet, Muhammad, wrote this in a famous hadith. The greater struggle is the struggle with the self. Or in other words, the self is not a friend of Allah. And what about our Jesus, our teacher, our Lord? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31, you are truly my disciples. If you remain faithful to my teachings, he's the authority. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Hmm. 
Matthew chapter 16, a bit more direct. If you want to be my followers, any of you, let them self-actualize. And uh, No, that's not what it says. It says let them deny themselves. Deny themselves. And take up a cross and follow me. And uh, what about the apostle Paul? author of half the New Testament? Well, despite the fact that he actually puts self-control as one of his spirit fruit, 1 Corinthians 9.27, he says, I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Now, uh, fast forward a few centuries from from Paul. And uh, in the fourth century a prodigy from Africa named Augustine converts to Christianity. St. Augustine, by the way, did not become a Christian until he was 30 years old. He's 30. And for the first 30 years of his life, he just sort of kind of like lived la vida loca. He did whatever. He tried it all out. He tried all the main philosophies out of his day. Uh, He was probably most committed for a time to Manichaeism, but then he met the guru of it and realized this guy didn't know what he's talking about. Now, he was really attracted, though, to this uh, diplomat named Ambrose, who who just so happened to also be the bishop of the church in Milan. And he decided to disciple under Ambrose Ambrose eventually converted Augustine, baptized him, and put him on the bishopric path to where Augustine eventually becomes the Bishop of Hippo. Now, if you read Augustine's writings, they are, they're dense, but they are searingly brilliant. And building off the traditions of Jesus and Paul, Augustine offers this interesting sociological insight about sin. Augustine... uh, basically believed that uh, all of our problems boil down to disordered loves or disordered desires. He believed all human beings were created in the image of God, which means we were created by love to love God and others. All we do is love, right? So our problem is one of two things. We either love the wrong things or we love the right things in the wrong order. (laughs) For example, work. You should love your work. You should love your vocation in life, whether it's in the home or the workplace, you should love God's call. You were created. You were created to contribute to human civilization. You were. But if you start to love your work more than, I don't know, your spouse or your fifth grader, that's a disordered love and it's gonna create suffering in your life. You see how the theory works? So uh, fast forward all the way to the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, just brilliant, again, searingly brilliant. He restates Augustine's idea in an essay he writes called First and Second Things. This is what Lewis wrote. He said, you can't get second things by putting them first. This is so good. You get second things only by putting first things first. You follow? Okay, so I'll give you another example. Um, Again, it is totally natural to desire friendships. We were created for community. But if you allow social acceptance and approval to become a first thing, first thing in your life, 
Well, then over time, you're going to become so self-conscious. You'll probably be a little obnoxious. You'll be a joiner and an enabler. You won't be able to speak that last 10% to, to your friends, which means you won't be a very good friend at all. But on the flip side, if instead you just genuinely love people because God loves you the way Jesus loved you, then over time what you'll find is you actually have more friends. Like more people will like you. And you'll live in the divine approval and acceptance of God, which means it won't matter if people like you or not you've already got all the approval and acceptance that you need. You see how this works? When we get first things in their proper place, well, the second things just fall into place. Now, uh, until the, the 20th century, Augustine's idea that sin's basically rooted in, in disordered loves, disordered desires, it kind of ruled the roost uh, until uh, Sigmund Freud came along and changed everything. I, I was reading some stuff from Ron Belgall this week. He's a ethics and philosophy professor. Basically, he suggests that the age of authenticity was sort of born from Freud's influence. Uh, so Sigmund Freud, just kind of put, you, put it into context for you, he was an atheist. And so uh, building off Darwin's theory, he did not believe that humans were created in God's image. He believed humans were essentially animals. We're not driven by love, but rather we're driven by desire, libido if you will. And libido doesn't mean like just sexual desire. It just means any desire for pleasure. Now, because our parents and society and government knows that if everybody just chases down their pleasures, like society would go crazy, they, they teach us to repress them or they create laws or, or rules to repress them. And Freud says that the repression of our desire for pleasure in any way, shape, or form, that this is the key, is the root of all neurosis. Or in layman's terms for you, anytime someone comes into your life who's an authority over you and they tell you that you can't act on a desire that's true to you, that's what makes you unhappy. Now I'm gonna put a summary slide on the screen real quick. And here's what I want you to do. Uh, I just want you to reflect. Can you put the summary up there? Yeah. Just reflect on how different these two views of reality are. Augustine believes humans are image bearers created to love God and each other. Therefore, when we love the wrong things or love the right things out of order, we suffer. Freud believes humans are animals driven primarily by desire for pleasure. Therefore, when I, our desires are repressed, even for, good or, even for good of family or community, we suffer. Why don't you think about those for a second? And how radically different they are. Literally, they're worlds apart. One tells us the key to life is love, like figuring out who this God of love is and how to love him well and becoming people of love over the course of our lives. And the other tells us the key to life is desire. Actualizing, achieving, satisfying the desires you have and building a community that allows it. Think about that. Now, sadly, it's the, the latter, not the former, that's won out 
in our day and age. And it's just being sown into us. It's constantly being, we're being discipled in it in our culture. It's the background noise of our culture. And if you're not careful, if you just grow up in it, or if you're, you're not careful and, uh, and you don't pay attention to it, what happens is you just gradually over time begin to assume that it's reality. In William Shakespeare's Hamlet, the famous line is said, uh, this above all, to thine own self be true. Jeez, Shakespeare. He's just got a way of making it sound so nice, so beautiful. But do you know who says this in Hamlet? Does anybody know who says this? Flex your literature muscles here. You know who says it in the play? Polonius. Polonius, the idiot. (laughs) And I quote, this is what Shakespeare calls him, a foolish prating knave. He's the fool of the story. And if you follow his advice, Shakespeare agrees, Aristotle agrees, Buddha agrees, Muhammad agrees, Jesus agrees, Paul agrees, Augustine agrees, and C.S. Lewis agrees that so shall you be as well. Uh, now, uh, back to Paul. <laughs> Turns out our culture is the one with the shallow view, right? Not Paul, but back to Paul. Uh, Galatians five nineteen. he says this, extending his argument. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornications, uh, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, Drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The generosity throws me off by the way. The NRSC, okay, for those of you who are raised in church, what is that supposed to be? Okay, Goodness. That's how I was raised when I was supposed to be goodness, but it's basically the same thing in Greek, okay? Now, um, Paul's argument, okay? He's just told us that there's basically two kinds of, of desires inside of us, right? Now he takes the argument one step further, and he says, let me show you the fruit of following those desires. If you follow the desires of the flesh, this is the fruit that it bears. If you follow the desires of the spirit, this is the fruit that it bears. Basically, Uh, The apostle Paul says, inside of us is the potentiality. By us, I mean you. Inside of every single one of you and me and you, inside of all of us is the potentiality to become one of two selves. You can become a self-driven by the flesh or a self-driven by the spirit. You can become the villain or you can become spiritual. The potential's in you. Maybe the greatest illustration of this comes from the Pixar film, The Incredibles. Cartoons always just make it easy. Er, um, So uh, in The Incredibles, there's uh, an aspiring superhero named Buddy Pine who goes to his uh, superhero idol, Mr. Incredible, and he says this really, really profound thing to him, okay? He says, you always say be true to yourself, but you never say which part of yourself to be true to. Ooh, it's Galatians 5. Now, as the plot unfolds, what we see is that Buddy 
becomes the supervillain syndrome. who will stop at nothing to make a name for himself. You know, and the irony of the movie is that he was actually just following Mr. Incredible's advice. He was being true to himself. It's just a part of himself that's domineering and selfish. Now you see, the advice be true to yourself is actually good advice. If, if there is a part of yourself that is grounded in truth. And that is the good news of Jesus' gospel. That we surrender to him, we embrace him as Savior and Lord. The spirit of truth is deposited in us. And I don't know how loud you have the spirit turned up in your life today. That's hard work over time. But if you turn him up and you are guided by the spirit and you start stacking up years after years and decades after decades, what you'll find is that you will actually become a self of love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, it's beautiful. Now, you want to know how to turn it up in your life? Well, this is how Paul concludes the, uh, the passage. He gives us three steps here. Three steps to turn the Spirit up. First, step three, we're going to go backwards. Be guided by the Spirit. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us also be guided by the Spirit. We have to actively pursue the Spirit's leadership in our lives if we want to become more, quote unquote, spiritual. It's not magic, y'all. You don't just accidentally, you gotta gotta pursue the Spirit. Now, uh, I created this diagram like three or four years ago for a series, and I decided to bring it back because it's just, it's relevant, okay? It was in a series that we were talking about how to hear from God, and uh, so we talked about the Holy Spirit. There's actually three concrete channels through which you can hear from the Spirit, be guided by them. Okay, and that's the top line there. There's Scripture, which we believe is inspired by the Spirit. There's your conscience, which for the record, your conscience is not the Spirit. The Spirit's the Spirit. But the Spirit wants to control your conscience, and He will when He comes in you and you begin to give it over Him. And then, of course, there's other people, spiritual people, other people who have the Spirit, which, by the way, this is not to say that people outside of Christianity don't have anything to offer. They do. There's this thing called common grace. But I would suggest to you that the people who speak deeply into your life should probably be people who share the Spirit as well. Now, when you take those three channels and you multiply them times the next two things, prayer and long-standing commitment, then what you get over time is the bottom line there, which is a life connected to God. You get prayerful daily reading and reflection over the scripture. You get this regular contemplative introspection into your heart. And this may be the most important one. You get long-standing relationships with a spiritual family and it guides you in the way of the spirit. That's step three. Now step two. Step three, be guided by the Spirit. Step two, crucify the flesh. 524, Paul says, and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You gotta crucify it, y'all. Crucify, like this is an aggressive and violent metaphor on purpose. When I think of something being crucified, I think the hammer and the nails into the wood. You literally crucify, you nail your sin to the cross 
because that's where you find forgiveness. But you nail your sin to the cross so that it dies with Jesus, is buried into his tomb, from which he and he alone rose from the dead and our sin did not rise with him. Crucify, mortify, kill it, Paul says. Shed that sin. This is the one time we people in the kingdom of love get to be a bit violent, y'all, so take advantage of it. Crucify it. The world says, worship your fleshly desires. The King Jesus says, crucify them. Colossians chapter three, verse five, put to death, Paul says, therefore whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These desires of the flesh aren't to be tolerated, they're to be annihilated. Crucify them. Or in summary, according to the Apostle Paul here, uh, the self isn't meant to be expressed. It's meant to be crucified with Jesus and then risen from the dead by the Spirit. Which, by the way, leads us to step number one. This is the invitation today and the invitation of this series. Receive the Spirit. Before you crucify, before you can be guided by the Spirit, you have to receive Him. And I would say to you today, and this means, this meant, it's not meant to be offensive at all. Because the Spirit, no doubt the Spirit is active in all the world, but the Spirit is not inside of all of us. The sealing of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit is a special gift given to those who surrender to Jesus. When we surrender to Jesus, our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit. So I would ask you, have you surrendered? I'm reminded here of of Acts 2.37. Peter preaches literally the the first sermon on the crucified and risen Jesus. And Acts 2, and after he finishes, this happens, verse 37. Now when they heard this, Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that, that is a literal rendering in the Greek, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or in Peter's mind, there is an inseparable connection between repentance and baptism, same together, and forgiveness and spirit. If you want to be forgiven, if you want to walk in life through the power of the spirit, then first you gotta surrender to Jesus on his terms. You have to reject the age of authenticity and bow before the kingdom authority of Jesus. This is what baptism is. It's casting off all the models. The age of authenticity actually gets this right. You have to cast off all the models imposed on us by the world and by the flesh and embrace the one model of being human that we find in Jesus, not in our own hearts. It's choosing one authority and that's not the authority of self. It's the authority of Jesus' spirit. But one of the great contradictions of our moment right now is that it demands freedom. Like you do you, go your own way, be whatever you wanna be, don't tread on me, you have your rights, right? And yet in the middle of all this, there have never been more people, at least I've seen, that have no idea who they are. Or why they're here. They're just walking through life wondering if their life has any meaning at all. People today are searching, man. They are searching for identity everywhere. Searching for identity in sex. Searching for identity in politics. Searching for identity in work. Searching for identity in activist causes or in their kids. 
God, help our kids. Or in our raw desires, thinking our desires somehow make us good or make us happy. All it's doing is tanking us mentally, tearing apart our communities, frustrating our patients, confusing our minds, destroying our bodies, and crushing our kids. Isn't it odd, by the way, that during the age of freedom where we're all like, you know, we can do whatever we want. Isn't it interesting that in this age that prides itself on freedom, the best-selling book internationally, I believe, over the last five years is a a book uh, written by Jordan Peterson called The 12 Rules of Life. 12 Rules, an antidote for chaos. Now, for the record, I'm not endorsing that book. I'm just noticing it. In an age of freedom, we're begging for rules. You see, in reality, all those choices aren't freeing. They're actually anxiety-inducing. The Cheesecake Factory menu sounds good in theory. <laughs> Until you're on page 14, and you're like, can you just give me a burger? Like, I mean, <laughs> like most of us spend every night like scrolling through through Netflix for an hour and then we go to bed frustrated because I just can't find I remember, I remember when I was a kid um, they weren't in streaming services yet and so we would go to the movies and everybody watched basically the same thing because they would release two or three and I don't know I was happy I think <laughs> so our culture is a case study in this y'all if you go your own way and reject all authority and try to figure it out on your own you don't listen to God or the Bible or your parents or you know the government Nothing, right? And, and if anybody tries to push back on you, you just cancel them out of your life. If that's what you do, it's going to be anxiety-inducing, and over time, it's just gonna crush you. But we're doing it to our kids. I've said this to the high schoolers before when I'm preaching their service. Are you really gonna ask a 15-year-old to, to build their own identity? Like to get inside these warring desires that we all know are in there, you know. To get inside that, like sort it all out and figure out who you are for the next 70 years of your life. Good luck, honey. By the way, don't forget to put on your deodorant. Like, really? Now I mean this with all due respect, they can't do it. There ain't a 15-year-old in the world who can do it. And that's because there ain't a 50-year-old in the world who can do it. None of us can. None of us are meant to sit in the seat of God and play his role. But the good news of Christianity is that we don't have to because we've seen God in the flesh, in Jesus. So I'll leave you with this as we transition into communion. Acts 2, 37 and 38. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent, be baptized every one of you name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Believe it or not, this process of surrender through repentance, baptism, forgiveness, and living in light of the Spirit is what Christianity calls freedom. It's the up down, uh, upside down way of Jesus. Want to experience freedom? Be ruled by it. The one good, good king who knows how to give it. So as we transition into communion, I just want you to take your communion out. I want you to hold it into your hands. And I want you to spend a moment in prayerful reflection. I'm gonna leave this verse on the screen. And I would encourage you to act on one of two words. Repent, repent. All of us every day need to repent, right? Or for some of you, be 
baptized. The weekend after Easter, April 24th, is a baptism weekend. We'll put the number on the bottom of the screen there. If you want to make a decision to be baptized today, text it. A pastor will be waiting on the other end. Let's reflect over Scripture together.